Convention Friends. The episode you're about to hear was created prior to the enactment of the Well-Ordered Society Act. It is maintained here as a record, an archive, and a legacy of the wandering aimlessness that preceded our current predicament. It represents one step of many on the evolutionary journey from inherited defaults to holy, blessed, righteous surrender in the service of play. Enjoy. for being here welcome to another episode of just here with laughing man um today's episode is going to be a little different um i'm going to keep to the theme as always where we explore you know things that can help us to uh well i don't want to say things that sounds so general but topics and ideas um and people for which we can find a reason to uh, have a little gratitude and express some of that gratitude um and in this particular episode, I, um, I'm actually taking some inspiration from my sister who recommended that, uh, you know, every once in a while, maybe like a story time episode would be fun. So um, I suppose it could be fun. I could see it. Um, and, it, you know, it's funny. I always, uh, each week as this goes on, there's no like grand master plan. I just kind of have, I mean, I got like a little bag of topics I could draw from, but there's really no plan or order to this. But yeah, so as I'm sure you're all aware, uh, Christmas was this past Sunday, so uh, Merry Christmas to all the people who celebrate that. Um, also, Happy Hanukkah to the people who celebrate Hanukkah, because it's still Hanukkah, actually. I think it's the sixth day of Hanukkah, or maybe today's the fifth day. Because of that, I was spending some time with my family, uh, my mom, my sister, my, my dad, my grandparent, my grandmother. Um, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. My sister told me that, uh, you know, obviously the typical topics are pretty exciting and intriguing, and they're like uh, food for the brain. but also, sometimes it'd be cool to just have stories to listen to. So here I am. Uh, I figure I can, uh, I can keep with the theme of gratitude, but also tell a bit of a story. So I think where I want to start this is, um, you know, I've mentioned in the past that I used to work in law enforcement. Um, we're going to go into a bit more detail there because allegedly law enforcement stories are, are fun to hear. Uh, I suppose I, this isn't, shouldn't be surprising to me just because, you know, cops as a TV show is a thing and people like that, apparently. Um, and there's, you know, various law enforcement related shows people enjoy like law and order and um, the wire and whatnot. So um, some of those things tend to be like approximations of real life. I would say um, obviously I'd say like law and order is definitely much more of a dramatization. And then you have other shows like I think, you know, Southland struck me as like fairly realistic. Um, you know, everything is a dr- dramatization, right? You got to make it fit for, you got to make it exciting for TV, but you know, there's a, uh, there's more realistic and less realistic ways to do that. <laughs> So uh, why did I, why did I go to TV? Oh my God. Oh, people like cop stories. That's why, that's why I thought about TV. So, you know, I had, I've spent a lot of time, um, in and around law enforcement, uh, in the beginning of my law enforcement foray, for those who don't know, my mom used to work in law enforcement as well. So that was kind of my, 
entry point to it is, you know, she worked at a police department. And so I kind of got to see a little bit through her experience, what that's like. Um, and then actually her recommendation when I was in middle school, she recommended that I volunteer with my local department. And so for those who um, are, may not be aware for, for the uninitiated out there, there's actually a lot of ways you can volunteer uh, with a law enforcement agency um, without even being a cop. Right? I mean, there are many states that also allow you to volunteer as a cop. So um, you might be thinking like, oh, that's weird. Um, if you think about the fact that there are volunteer fire departments and volunteer firefighters, it's literally just take that exact same concept, apply it to the police. And, and that's, that's a thing in a lot of states. It's definitely more, um, I guess, established and um, normal, I guess, or regular in a place like, you know, California, Florida, Texas are kind of the big ones. And then there are a number of other places as well, other states where it's, it's a formal thing. Um, strangely, it's like not as common on the East Coast, with the exception of like Washington, D.C., which has a pretty robust reserve program uh, modeled after LAPD. There's not much of it on the East Coast, not like, in, not like you'll see in a place like Florida or a place like Texas or a place like California. But anyway, you know, you can volunteer with a law enforcement agency. And um, I did this when I was a teenager. Um, there's different levels. So for the department I was volunteering with, which is the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, um, you know, they have, you know, if you're between the ages of, I think it's 14 and 21, you can be what's called like an explorer. And so actually um, there's this organization called Learning for Life. And it's, it's basically like, a, I think it's a subsidiary of Boy Scouts of America. And basically it's, um, it's designed to encourage teenagers to basically like volunteer in public service type things. And so, um, under learning for life, they have what's called like explorer programs and different explorer posts. And you can volunteer basically to work with, um, a law enforcement agency as an explorer, as a teenager. Um, and it's cool because the idea is basically you get exposure to some of the bureaucracy behind that. You get exposure to, um, what that looks like in the real world. And in theory, you know, you're led down a positive path that potentially culminates with you actually joining a law enforcement agency someday. Um, in my experience with LA Sheriff's, um, really awesome program. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the best programs I've ever experienced. Um, I certainly have a ton of gratitude for the people I met and who were mentors and, and teachers to me as I sort of was becoming an adult, a young adult, uh, and at the kind of mid to late teenage years as I was in that program. Um, you know, we kind of did a lot of, in, in that program in particular, we did a lot of leadership training. We did a lot of just other kinds of useful training, um, very similar to, I guess, I mean, I guess Boy Scouts do the same thing, right? So, I mean, if, if you're familiar with Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, the kinds of things you might do there are kinds of classes you might take in that. I, I think it's very similar. It's, it's more of like a law enforcement context and focus, um, but it's a similar kind of ordeal. And um, it was fun. I mean, I did that from when I was, uh, basically from when I was four, uh, 15 until I graduated high school. And um, one of the things you can do, so number, what, what do these volunteers do, right? Um, basically, you help out the department, right? And so um, for the teenagers, the explorers, a lot of it can be like helping, around, helping out around the station, right? So people have to come in to get fingerprints for various reasons. Um, people might come in because they want to check their records. They might need a copy of a report. So you can work behind the desk, you know, and you can help people with that, usually with some kind of full-time employee of the department. They're kind of overseeing you, but more or less, you're just kind of augmenting the station personnel. We also did things like clean weapons, you know, so they had an armory with like shotguns and tasers and all that. And, you know, those things need to be cleaned. And so, you know, we'd go clean that. Right. And it's, it's basically just a way like you're helping out with things that otherwise like the full-time employees would have to do at the station. Um, you'd interact with the public. We also helped with events. So anytime there was like, I don't know, like, let's say there was going to be a 10 K 10 K. Is that what they do? Is that the run they do? Five K's, five K's, 10 K's. Um, some kind of run, right? And then you need to block off streets. So we would help out with the blocking off the streets, placing of cones. Um, if there's going to be like a street fair or a block party that the city was doing, you know, we'd help out with that stuff, kind of set up, tear down, all that jazz. So, and it's all volunteer. You know, you're, you're doing it 
uh, not for money, but just kind of to help out and support. And, you know, it's seen as like a good thing to do for teenagers um, rather than, you know, what other, any other kind of like trouble they might be getting themselves into. Um, and so I did that uh, at uh, LA Sheriff's. And one of the, one of the stories I wanted to tell was, so um, in addition to helping out in stations and helping out in events, what you can do is basically help out uh, on the road. Right. And so you basically want to ride along and in LA, in LA County, the explorers, the uniform looks very similar to uh, the like full sworn deputy uniform. That's not true in every department, but it is there. And I think that's actually a good thing. I think it's probably more confusing if there's this person there who is kind of in a uniform, but it's not the same. Um, and, oh, the other thing I'll mention is, so there's other types of volunteers. Like, what do you do if you're outside of the ages of 14 and 21? So they also have like basically adult volunteers. Um, and those folks, you know, again, it's just the same. It's a similar program. It's just they're, they're adults. They have a little bit more things they can do. Like they actually drive around and, um, they'll do like welfare checks, which a welfare check is basically, um, let's say someone, you know, let's say you haven't seen your neighbor in a really long time and you're worried, you know, like, Hey, you know, I haven't seen my neighbor. Maybe they're an elderly person and you want someone to check on them. That's kind of what a welfare check is. The, you know, they might send some of these volunteers to do that. And, you know, this is all unarmed people, you know, we're just, you know, going out and checking stuff like that. Um, so there's other ways to volunteer if you're not, um, a teenager, obviously. And then I think at the like closer to being a cop perspective, uh, perspective, they also have most departments in California will have what they call um, like a reserve program. And again, this is not just a California thing. It's, it's a pretty common thing in, you know, California, um, Texas, Florida, I think in like some other States like Arizona and Nevada, it's pretty popular as well, where basically you have people who are residents of their community who want to volunteer as actual officers. Um, and so they go through the full training, they get, you know, they go through the Academy, they can, um, depending on how much training they do and, and to, you know, what certifications they obtain, you know, they might have full arrest powers, the same as a full-time, um, officer might. And that's what I did when I was in, in DC, when I was a police officer in DC, I was a reserve officer. And so, um, the way that that worked is I, I we did the exact same Academy as the full-time folks. Um, we had all the exact same training so arguably we had better training in some cases because the full-time Academy is like a, an, a machine kind of an assembly line. And so they're kind of rushed through a lot of points, whereas because we were not on the same time schedule, we got to dig, I think, a little bit deeper into some topics than the full-time academy did. But I mean, it's all the same training. And then when you go on on the street, you still have to do your full-time, like you're, you know, you have a certain amount of time you need to do on the road with, you know, with a training officer before you're allowed to patrol by yourself. And so, you know, I did all that. I got to the point where I was patrolling by myself and, you know, I don't know, I probably worked every Friday and Saturday for the entire time that I was there. And, uh, and I like, you know, it's, that's when all the fun's happening is Friday evenings and Saturday evenings. Um, but we're not, you know, this is, this is not a, not a story time necessarily about my adult law enforcement life, more so from my, my teenage years. Um, so we were reminiscing on this, this wild story. Uh, one of my first ride-alongs as a 15-year-old with the LA Sheriff's, um, it was actually my second ride-along, I remember this, because uh, it was significant. <laughs> so um, it was my second ride-along, and I was with a deputy who, it was also like his first or second day off of his training. So it was like, you know, he's just cleared to be by himself. Probably not a great combo, uh, if I recall correctly. After this, we did not, um, the, the station I was at was like, we're not going to let, you know, brand new explorers go on ride-alongs with brand new deputies. It's just a bad combo. Um, so we started around, this was probably, I think, a Friday evening. And, you know, the evening shift on a Friday is typically, in, so in most departments, I, I don't want to speak for most departments because I don't know most departments, but most departments I've seen, um, the Friday evening shift is like, you know, it's one of the busier times. People are off work. So, you know, they're, they're going out and they're getting rambunctious and rowdy. They're doing stuff. And so that, that also means that you usually have more, I don't want to say gung-ho, I guess, but like definitely younger and newer people working it because the people who've been around, the, the officers who've been around a while, deputies, who, deputies who've been around a while, 
they want their weekends. You know, they want to have their Friday night. They want to have their Saturday night. Everybody wants to have their Friday night and their Saturday night off, right? That's just like culturally with our 40-hour work week, that's what we do. Um, so usually, who gets stuck with a Friday evening shift? Who gets stuck with a Saturday evening shift? It's the rookies. It's the brand new people. And you still have some senior people because you obviously don't want a bunch of rookies running around causing trouble. Um, but for the most part, <laughs> you know, it's younger people. It's newer people, people with more energy, people who are, you know, looking to make a name for themselves, whatever. So it was probably like, I think it was a Friday evening. I really don't remember. This was a really long time ago. Um, but this was my second ever ride along. And the first one went great, actually. So my first ride along was more or less, well, it wasn't uneventful. Um, I actually think a deputy got stabbed like right as we were starting. Um, and we always started, I think around 4 p.m. And so it was just, it was like, and this is a sort of a, uh, maybe like a superstition of like whenever shift is, the shift is changing from like day shift to evening shift, it just gets busy for no reason. You know, it's like, it's like somehow the world knows that there's a shift change occurring and then everything just starts to pop off. I think we were, uh, I remember specifically that we were going to get food because that's, you know, you kind of have to, um, if it's not busy, so if you're in any kind of first response, first responding responder capacity, whether you're a firefighter, well, it may be different for firefighters because they tend to work 24 hour shifts. Um, but you know, you have lulls and then you have like really busy moments. And when it gets busy, sometimes it's like, you're just going call to call to call. So you don't necessarily have time to do things like use the bathroom or eat food. So if you had, if you didn't eat before you started, which is usually a good idea, just in case, um, and you were worried that it was going to get busy later, you might say, okay, well, we're here at the beginning. There's nothing going on. You know, you look at the number of calls coming in, you look at everything happening across your area of responsibility and you say, all right, nothing's going on. We might be able to get some food. And so you do that, right? You never acknowledge, by the way, that nothing is going on because by acknowledging it, you cause busyness. Um, another, you know, superstition, I guess, <laughs> of, 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 of cops, at least that I've worked with, you know, there's kind of that, if you say that it's quiet, you'll, you'll ruin the fact that it's quiet. Um, so we, we were on our way to get food. And then I remember we got a call for, and again, this is like my second ride along. So I was still kind of figuring out before they, before they send us out, we had to do a bunch of training, even as a teenager, even for this ride along program, we had a pretty extensive, like, Hey, you're going to be out there. You're kind of in a uniform. No, you're not a cop. So you can't, you definitely can't do anything cop like, but because you're out there and because you're in a uniform, there's some basics you need to know, like how to use the radio and uh, how to have situational awareness. And like, there's a pretty extensive bit of training. I think it's like three months of training we had to do just to, just to be in the, in the passenger seat as an observer, purely an observer. You're not participating. You're not, you know, engaging. You were just an observer. You're there to watch and to learn. Maybe be a second set of eyes, but you know, you're, you're, you're really just an observer. And so I was still kind of, you know, I was doing my thing. I'm like, all right, I'm hearing the radio, all these different things. We got this call, I think for, it was a domestic violence call. And I think certainly in my experience, probably in a lot of places, domestic violence tends to be the most common or either domestic violence or like a family disturbance. So a family disturbance may not be like the criminal version of domestic violence where someone has assaulted someone else. Um, but it could be like a, um, you know, there's a heated argument. Maybe the neighbors are concerned. Um, those tend to all get grouped into the same like domestic dispute, domestic disturbance, family disturbance. There's different names that departments will have for it. Um, but it's definitely the most common call. And um, also in my experience, it's usually not the people involved who are calling, right? So I bring that up because it's important to understand that for responding officers, domestic violence is like the most dangerous call. If you were to watch any cop movie or show, they're going to say that at some point, probably it's the most dangerous call you can respond to is domestic violence. Um, officers get injured and killed most at domestic violence calls. I think second only to like car accidents, right? In terms of injuries and, and, and deaths. And so as a result, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a higher tense kind of thing. And usually it's like, you know, you can imagine, right? Like you and your partner in a, in a, in a dispute or you and your sibling are in a dispute or you and someone you're close to fam family, family wise, or that you live with are having some kind of internal dispute. And those tend to get pretty heated, um, especially if it's so bad or so loud or so rambunctious that the neighbors have called. And a lot of times it is the neighbors. Like I, I think in, I can't think of a single scenario. I'm sure there's at least one 
But most of the, the times I remember going to any call like that, it was like somebody not involved called. Which means when you show up as the cops, the people who are involved in the argument are usually surprised. I'm like, oh my God, why are the police here? Um, you know, we didn't call the police that we know, like we didn't call who called. And it's like, usually it's a neighbor or somebody passing by saw something and like, oh, you know, they were concerned. Um, and in all departments, I mean, it, it, I think it was the case when I was at, in LA and it certainly was the case in DC. When you get that kind of call, you also can't, you can't say you, you're not going to go, right? So you might think that there would be some calls where it's like, oh, that's clearly ridiculous. We don't, we're not going to respond to that because it's clearly ridiculous. Unfortunately, uh, you don't really get that luxury if, if someone calls and they say something's going on. Regardless of how ridiculous it sounds, you still got to check it out just in case. Because, um, it's, again, it's kind of like, uh, if it's nothing, it's too easy to just be like, oh, we went by and there was nothing there. Um, so, anyway, we get this domestic violence call. We show up, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I think, you know, this is, I think, the first call like this that I went. Um, I don't really know tactically. I mean, we certainly probably didn't do, uh, we, we, and by we, I mean the, the deputy I was with. Because um, I wasn't driving, right? So, I, I'm just a 15-year-old in the passenger seat observing, strictly observing. <laughs> um, and the, we show up. And there's this guy standing out in front of the house that we got the call to, right? So I think the call was, uh, I think it was in this case, it was the woman who called and she'd said that her boyfriend had hit her. And then he's standing outside. Um, and this is like at the actual house, you know, we pull up and he's already outside. So we get out, the deputy I'm with, uh, I think he says, you know, hey, where is, you know, where's the woman who called? And I think he said something like, you're not going to talk to her. She, she, you don't need to talk to her. Um, now, another thing to understand in a domestic dispute situation, especially if there's violence involved, is that you always want to confirm that both people are okay, right? If you call on your partner because your partner has done something violent to you, the last thing you want is for the police to show up, talk to your partner outside. Your partner says, no, no, they're fine. You don't need to talk to them. And then the police say, okay, great. And then they leave. Like if you have just been abused, you've just been assaulted. That's, that's not the way that that needs to go. If anything, that's actually much worse because a lot of times, um, especially in the abusive scenario, the abuser will retaliate for, will retaliate against the victim because they perceive the victim as trying to cause trouble for them. But even if the victim didn't call, I mean, that's, that's something I've seen before where the abuser got mad that the victim called when it's like, well, the neighbors called, not the victim, but the abuser has to focus their anger and their sense of control on their victim. Right. And so as a part of that, I think if the police show up, it, it can be a very tense situation because then the abuser might think that the victim is trying to wrestle, wrest control away from them. And so it's, you know, usually as the responding officer, you, you have to confirm both parties are okay. Like it's not enough for the guy to just be like, no, 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 she doesn't want to talk to you. Oh, she changed her mind. Oh, she's fine. No, no, no. We got, we have, we have to confirm that with her, especially if she called, right? If it's the neighbors, you know, in theory, you could consider like, well, if the, if it was just the neighbors and it wasn't the victim, you know, wasn't the other person who called, then maybe it is a nothing burger, but um, for safety's sake, for everyone's sake, uh, you want to make sure you confirm with both parties that, that everyone is fine. Um, and so in that case, it's also why in those scenarios where there's an allegation of abuse, um, there, you know, there are, there are calls where if it's a nothing burger, you show up and someone says, Oh, it's a nothing burger. And it's like, okay, it's not, it's a nothing burger. They said it's a nothing burger and it's fine because the implications of the call are like, there's no reason to go pushing for it. Um, in many cases, if it's, uh, or at least in a, in a, something like domestic violence, right. Or some, you know, very serious crimes, it's not enough for someone to say everything is fine. You know, the police sort of have to confirm it. Um, I don't remember if it was like this in, in California when I was an explorer, but certainly when I was a cop in DC and it, it may not still be like this in DC, but you weren't, we as the cops were not allowed to not check. Right. And so it's like, there's a, there's actually a, it's like a misdemeanor in DC of like failure to take police action. Um, and it was, it's basically you as an officer could get arrested basically for a misdemeanor or charged with a misdemeanor. If you didn't follow through on certain types of investigations. One of those was domestic violence. 
Um, DC also had, and again, I don't know if it still does, but uh, you were required, any, any domestic violence situation, you were required to make an arrest. Um, so in a lot of situations, police officers have discretion, which means that they don't have to arrest someone. Whether there's, you know, if there's probable cause, to, you need probable cause to make an arrest. Um, but, you know, if there's discretion, then maybe you can settle for something like a ticket or, you know, something that's not fully taking the person to jail. In D.C., at least when I was a cop, it was if it's domestic violence, someone has to go to jail. Like the, there is a requirement that someone be arrested. I think they might have relaxed that since then because it, it can be ridiculous to have like a mandatory arrest <laughs> requirement um, because that I think it creates a culture that is probably not healthy for anybody, actually, <laughs> um, if the police show up and they have to make an arrest. Um, but. You, you definitely have to make sure that everybody's okay. Like, even if you're not arresting anybody, you certainly want to talk to both people, get both sides of the story, understand what occurred. So we show up, he's outside, he's out front. He says, we, you know, we're looking for the person who called, which is, I think it was the lady. Uh, and he says, you don't need to talk to her. And so the deputy's like, oh, you know, we have to talk to her. You know, do you have any weapons on you? You know, you know come over here and we make sure you have no weapons. Um, now, another thing is, well, it's definitely true that the police need a search warrant to search. Uh, your person, your vehicle, whatever, right? Um, to search thoroughly, right? There's like levels of thoroughness. I'll, I'll, I'll put it, phrase it that way, levels of thoroughness um, that they need, you know, depending on how deeply of a search they're doing, they may need a warrant. However, um, there's lots of case law around the fact that from a, from a strictly safety perspective, to determine that you don't have weapons, for instance, the police can pat you down, right? They may not be able to go inside your pockets to, to take anything out, right? But they can certainly do a pat down outside of your pockets to determine if you have any weapons, just for, for safety purposes. Um, and there's, you know, case law that, that, that establishes that precedent. So if you're ever out and about and the police stop you and they say, Hey, we want to pat you down. then um, you know, you could be like, Oh, well, you're not allowed to do that. Well, actually there's precedent that, that, would, that says that they, they can do that. They can pat you down. Um, and vehicles in particular are tricky, tricky because there's a lot of case law around how a vehicle stop is particularly dangerous. And so there's actually, uh, you know, they, for instance, the police can have you step out of the vehicle to talk to you outside of the vehicle. Now they can't necessarily go searching everywhere. However, you know, anything that's like in plain view they can sort of look to make sure that you don't have any weapons within reach. Anything that anywhere that you could feasibly reach to grab a weapon and attack them. So a great, a great example of this is under the front seat. In theory, that you know that's something they could look at without a warrant because you could. It's within. It's within the reach of your physical person. Now, if they have you step out of the car and stand on the sidewalk so that you're not in the car anymore, then obviously what's under your seat you can't reach because you're now on the sidewalk. So you know there's there's certain levels of like there's certain logic that that applies to when you can actually do such a search for safety purposes and to make sure there are no weapons present. So we ask him, you know, the deputy asks this guy, you know, hey, come over here. We want to just make sure you don't have any weapons. And then I think the guy said something like, uh, no, you know, you, he, he was like, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, the deputy was like, oh, come over here, you know, put your hands on the hood. I want to make sure, pat you down and make sure you don't have weapons. And he said, no, no, you put your hands on the hood. And it's like, what? I mean, come on now. You know, he's clearly not, clearly not wanting to cooperate. Um, and then I think he says, what if I did have a weapon? You know, and, I, and I'm, I, this is all paraphrasing. So I'm not, this is a, this incident probably occurred more than 10 years ago. So I certainly don't remember verbatim. Um, I actually don't even remember the outcome of that case was. So I'm, this is like very much paraphrased, very much from my memory as a 15 year old, <laughs> 10 years down after the fact for a situation that is resolved. Um, but the, he, you know, he says something like, to that, to that nature where he starts to joke, like maybe I have a weapon. And I remember that he went into his, his pockets, you know, and he's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pull a weapon out now. As I'm sure many of you know from watching all manner of TV and maybe having seen some actual police videos, it's not a good idea to rapidly go into your pockets and bring your hands out when the police are asking you to come to them and talk to them and also keep your hands visible. If the police say, hey, please keep your hands where we can see them, and then you immediately reach into your jacket and 
start moving like you're reaching for something and slide, that's a very dangerous situation. Uh, I would say for you, uh, because the training that a lot of police officers will have is you're going, the next thing you're going to do is pull out something to kill me. So there's a certain like, I'm, I don't want to die, obviously, as the police officer. So if you're reaching in your pockets after I've told you not to, and you're also making a motion like you're going to pull something out, there's a high likelihood you might get shot <laughs> because the police officers don't want you to pull out a knife or a gun or whatever. There's lots of training officers get on how to defend themselves in that scenario. And you trigger the defense, you know, the fight or flight defense mechanism when you, when you do something like that. So this guy does that. He reaches in his pocket. Now, remember, as an explorer, I'm a 15 years old. I'm only allowed to observe. I'm not allowed to engage. I'm not allowed to do anything. However, one of the things that we're trained is that in a, as a situation escalates to, where, to being a situation where someone is in danger, in harm, the, then we are able to shift out of observer mode into protecting, you know, protecting life, et cetera. And so one of those things is you know, inside of the police cars is a shotgun. We get trained on firing the shotgun. We get trained on how to use it just in case, you know, say we're on an incident like this one and the deputy gets shot and then whoever shot the deputy is now coming to shoot me. I don't have a gun the way that the deputy does. So you get trained in how to you know, use the shotgun, which is usually in the car. Um, or if, like, say, the deputy goes down near you, you can take their gun out of the holster and then you can defend yourself with it. Um, so these are things you, we did get trained on. So in this scenario where this guy is basically saying, I have a weapon and I'm going to pull it out on you, I'm like, oh, shoot, I should get the shotgun, which I did. I, you know, I went into the car, I grabbed it, had it in my hands. And basically he goes into his pocket, he pulls it out, he pulls his hands out really fast. I mean, he basically did a motion like he was pulling a gun out of his pocket or out of his waistband. He did not have one. So I think, you know, I guess it's a credit to both me and the deputy that we didn't shoot this guy because he, we both were able to see that he did not have a gun in his hand. He didn't have anything in his hand. He didn't have a gun at all, actually. Um, I think he had a pocket knife, but he didn't actually ever pull it out. So the, I think that what, and the next thing that happens that when he does that motion, though, is he doesn't get shot, but he does get tased. So the deputy tasers him. Um, tasers are these very finicky devices because they, um, if you're not using the taser like directly on someone, right, which is like you, you can push it onto someone's skin and then you, know, you have all of the contact there between the taser and the person's body and then you deliver voltage. Now, if you're shooting a taser at a difference, there's these two prongs and they shoot out. And basically, if they don't space optimally and they don't both hit the person, you basically aren't able to complete the circuit. So basically, a prong one, prong two, they hit you. And then inside of you and then the two prongs, you have a completed circuit because electricity will flow through your body. And so the effective way to tase someone is for both prongs to hit. I think in this case, again, I, I, it's 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, I, I think I'm remembering correctly that only one of the prongs hit him. So the taser was not effective. Once he gets hit with a taser prong, he decides to start to rush the deputy that I was with uh, and attempt to tackle him. So the deputy pepper sprays him. So that's another thing. Usually most cops will carry tasers, pepper spray, baton, gun. That's like a pretty standard, I'd say a pretty standard like weapon kit for most officers in a lot of places. In DC, they didn't issue tasers for whatever reason, but most law enforcement agencies will have a taser, a gun, uh, a baton, and pepper spray. Pepper spray is surprisingly effective at de-escalation, I would argue. Um, then, so he pepper sprays the guy. And I do remember he said, you know, he gets sprayed in the face and he goes, ah, it tastes like hot sauce. Um, and I, I just, I remember that specifically because it was not effective on him. And um, if any of you have ever done any sort of like OC spray training, which I have done four times <laughs> in my life, unfortunately, it's not fun. I hate it. Uh, I get affected by it. There are some people though, I think it's like one in every thousand, um, which, you know, sounds like, a, like, like rare, but one in every thousand is like pretty not rare actually. Um, and there's, you know, pretty, a, a pretty, uh, high number of people who are not, um, susceptible to, you know, the, what is it? Oleo rice and capsicum, whatever the OC stands for in the spray. Um, it's basically just like cayenne pepper and water. I mean, that's, uh, that's a gross simplification, but just think like if you put some cayenne pepper in some water and you basically get some pepper spray and then there's different levels of strength for how, um, spicy, <laughs> I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, 
uh, the spice slash heat slash uh, sprayness of it. I don't know. Not the sprayness. That's dumb. But, you know, the effect that it has the OC spray. Um, some people are not affected by it. Uh, actually, when I was going through my training in D.C., one of my classmates was uh, immune. And so, the, you know, we go through the spray exercise where you have to get sprayed and, you know, this person gets, got sprayed and nothing happened. They're like, oh, cool. And, you know, it's like, yeah, some people just, it doesn't affect them. Um, I don't know if it was that, that was the case in this with this guy or if it's just that the spray that the department used was weak. Sometimes departments will issue spray that's too weak um, or it's just weaker than probably should be issued. So in this case, this guy, he's like, ah, it tastes like hot sauce. Manages to, uh, you know, then the fight's on, right? He ends up tackling the deputy. Um, by this point, we'd called for more units. I mean, basically the moment, that's the other thing in any scenario as a law enforcement officer where the situation is escalating. And obviously you want to try to deescalate. That's kind of like your mission. Deescalate, make sure deescalate. And then if the person is determined to fight you or do violence against you, you, you have to defend yourself. Um, but you, your goal is always to deescalate and get to a place where, you know, you have the situation under control. If a situation is escalating, then like one of the first things you want to do is like get more units to you because they're strength in numbers. Someone who feels like they can take you on a one-on-one fight may not be so confident when you have five, six, seven other people there, um, which is also why um, in some cases you see kind of like an overwhelming police response because, um, you know, you could say, oh, well, it's just one guy. Well, first of all, one guy is a lot. <laughs> you know, a one-on-one fight is not, it is not the, uh, I remember once a long time ago, there was this, this sergeant who was a mentor of mine. He's like, you know, we, the taxpayers do not pay the police to fight fair. If you are, if someone is trying to hurt you or harm you or your family or your property and you call for the government to come along, to protect you you don't want the government to engage in a fair fight to protect you you want which because if it's a fair fight they might lose um and that's not why we pay taxes to have the police we pay taxes to have the police to protect our you know our person and our property so when they when they come and you call and there's a situation where life is in danger or or, or a person is in danger of harm there's no fair fight it's a it's an overwhelming force to to de-escalate to assist to a place where no one's in danger um and so we had already called for more units and by that point, I think there were three other people there. This guy was pretty big. If I remember, he was like kind of a hefty guy. He's like maybe, he was probably, I don't know. He was probably my height, so probably like 5'10". And then, but he was like, you know, he's kind of fat. So maybe he was like, uh, I don't know, 220, two, I don't know, probably more than that. Like maybe like 250 pounds. But, you know, he's a fat guy, so, you know, so his stamina's not going to be there. But the deputy I was with was, I think he's like, you know, 5'9"-ish. Uh, so he's kind of a small dude. He's really skinny. And then I was, you know, a 15 year old. <laughs> so, but then we had, you know, a couple other deputies there. Fortunately, uh, we were, they, you know, every, they were able to get him handcuffed and, and subdued without any, you know, major harm to him other than the, I guess the pepper spray that wasn't effective. Um, the deputy wasn't, wasn't injured. Nobody was injured. The woman, um, was in fact, uh, had in fact been hit by him. And so she had marks on her face. Um, now, you know, we tend to believe if someone, they say, oh, you know, I got hit and then there was marks. I mean, that's, there's no reason to go question that on the street. That's, that's enough for probable cause. If there's, you know, any kind of evidence to the, to vindicate anyone, you know, that can come out later in court. But once you have something as plain as someone making an accusation, they were assaulted and there's visible evidence of that, whether it's a bruise or some kind of mark, it's like, that's kind of an easy open and shut, uh, probable cause for an arrest for assault in most places, certainly in California, or at least at the time. And definitely in DC is the same way. Um, if there's any kind of mark or bruise, it's, you know, it's kind of an open and shut. Well, clearly there was some kind of assault that occurred here. Now, what's funny about this in particular is that, uh, so this occurred in the city where my aunt lived. And obviously in the heat of the moment, you know, this is like my second ride along. This is the first domestic violence call I went to. I was, I, a lot was going through my mind. What I did not realize was that this incident was actually occurring around the corner from my aunt's house. Um, funnily enough, <laughs> literally my, my, so my mother was visiting my aunt that day. And she was leaving my aunt's house basically as we were pulling up to this incident. 
So to give you an idea of like the timing of it, she leaves my aunt's house. She turns the corner onto the street where we were responding. She basically, there's a stop sign there. She sees a police car responding, right? We had our lights and sirens on. And then we stop, you know, two doors down from the corner, which is where she had just turned onto. And we're now, you know, talking to this guy on this front lawn and there's all this stuff going on. And she sees me like pull the shotgun out of the car. And then she sees this fight go on and she's just sitting in her car at the stop sign watching all this happen. Um, and so it's just like, what are the odds that, you know, that this incident would occur right around the corner from my aunt's house and I, that I, her son, would be the person that responds to this. And then she basically got to see the whole thing from, you know, us pulling up to me getting out to uh, the deputy getting out and giving this guy commands and the guy not listening. And then, you know, the taser, the pepper spray, the, the fight, you know, the me with the shotgun in my hands. Uh, and so it's kind of a, it's an, it's, you know, it's a fun, fortunately everyone was fine. No one, you know, it's obviously it's not fortunate, the situation, right? The domestic violence is obviously terrible, but um, no one other than the victim was, was harmed. Um, and, you know, the guy was fine. The deputies were fine. I was fine. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a crazy thing for a mother to see her child, you know, in this situation. And, you know, my mom was supportive of me volunteering with the cops. And uh, like I said, she worked for a law enforcement agency. So, and, and she was kind of um, a part of what encouraged me to do it. So it's just, you know, what are the odds that all these things would kind of coalesce right around the street, uh, right around the corner from my, my aunt? Uh, and you know, I guess that's a funny story. <laughs> like I look back and I'm like, it, when my sister was telling me like, Oh, you should do like a story time. That would be fun. I'm like, well, I don't know that that's like that fun of a story, but you know, I suppose it could be interesting. Um, and it gives me a chance to kind of give a little bit of insight into how some of the like law enforcement stuff works and, and, um, really like how you can volunteer to do that. So yeah, I mean, that was, that's, that's kind of the story. That's the crux of it. Um, I certainly, uh, would recommend that, uh, if you are a person who likes to volunteer, now, maybe the police, you know, these days, I feel like a lot of people, they may not be super into law enforcement. There's a lot of, um, I don't know, anti-law enforcement sentiment, it seems, these days. But you can volunteer, you know, especially at your local level. I mean, when you look at your city, your county, there are probably ways that you can volunteer in the local apparatus of social work. And I, I include police sort of in that because police as first responders are often the first touch point in some cases for situations where, you know, it's really not like a law enforcement or criminal justice type situation, but because the police, you know, there's 911 and the police are the fastest to show up. Usually um, they might be the first touch point to something like an abusive situation or a mental health situation. Now there are lots of roles on various departments, various cities, various counties where you can volunteer, you can donate your, you know, you can give your own time to those causes and you can support your community. Um, whether that's being a volunteer firefighter, whether that's being a volunteer EMT, whether that's um, helping out with your local police station or sheriff station, whether that's working with your local child and uh, like child protective services or, or family services, all of these different groups out there tend to have volunteer opportunities where if you wanted to, you can contribute your time to them. Um, and I am incredibly grateful. I mean, I, I can't, I probably can't express enough how influential that experience was on me when I was a teenager working with LA sheriffs. I mean, the, some of the best mentors I ever had growing up came from the department. Um, some of the best lessons I learned on life and adulthood came from adults who were engaged in work to help people volunteering their time. I mean, the, the beautiful thing about it was the program was essentially self-sustaining and this is true in DC as well, where basically you have, you, you always have full-time, I guess, oversight for lack of a better word. But once you get beyond a certain threshold of, um, people able to volunteer and contribute their time, the program can be self-sustaining, which means it's volunteers running the whole thing and it's volunteers, you know, bringing in new people and it's volunteers taking on significant, significant workloads. Um, and so, you know, like we certainly volunteered a ton when I was in, in LA. Um, and then when I was in DC, I mean, I, there's countless times where, you know, just the volunteers were, were significantly uh, contributing to the work being done. Um, and 
um, you know, DC is probably a great example of this because there's lots of opportunities out there where you can, you can, um, they have what they call, I don't remember the technical term for it, but basically, um, in DC, they have like these domestic violence, uh, advocates or, or, or domestic dispute resolution folks. So you could, and that's a volunteer thing. It's entirely volunteer. It's entirely unpaid. It's, it's a way for people in the community. If they want to help the community, right. They want to, you want to help your community with dispute resolution. You want to help your community with, um, looking after kids that may not be in the best situation. If you want to help out your community with, with um, people dealing with mental health issues, I guarantee you there are um, city level and county level organizations that need the help and they definitely have volunteer programs. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a locality that didn't have some kind of volunteer program of that nature where, whether it was law enforcement, whether it was um, EMTs, whether it was firefighters, whether it was the social services, there's always something you can do where you can like jump in and contribute. I know I'm certainly grateful to the mentors I had along that way. And I'm grateful that I got to be a part of, really well run versions of those programs. And I got to see how they work when they work well. Um, I got to see the good that gets done when, you know, you're doing things like holiday toy drives and you're doing things like um, in DC, we had this program where after a violent incident, you know, you would have basically groups of volunteers would go into that area and just talk to people and, and be a listening ear, right? It's very separate from the investigation aspect of it because, you know, if there's a shooting or there's something serious like that, you always have detectives and whatnot that come along and it's, it's very, you know, kind of formal and kind of like, you know, they're looking to close a case and catch a bad guy. Um, but sometimes you just need people who are dealing with the trauma and the aftermath of that violent event in their community. And they want someone to talk to They want someone to hear them out. Um, and if, you know, anyone who's ever worked in any kind of first responder capacity probably knows that so much of the time you spend in, in a role like that is just hearing people out, listening to them. It's funny. There's a, uh, in the show industry, which is an HBO show about these people at this bank, very entertaining show. If you're, uh, if you're into entertaining shows, but uh, in the second season, um, one of the characters starts to work uh, in this politician's office and she has like a local office and there's this guy that keeps coming in every day, you know, and he wants to talk to the actual politician and she's always busy. And then this, this kid ends up working for her as a staffer and, you know, he decides to talk to the guy and gets to kind of know the guy. And a lot of it was just like, this guy just needed somebody to hear him out. You know, like he wasn't really that mad at the politician. He didn't really like want to rage against the system. He didn't really, he didn't really necessarily even have anything specific that he wanted policy wise. You just needed a listening ear and so much of social work, so much of um, public service at the local level in that capacity is really just like you're, you're coming up, you're interacting with people who are maybe at the worst point of their life. You're interacting with them at a time when they've just experienced some kind of trauma or they've experienced something difficult. And they, sometimes they just need someone to talk to. Now there's, you know, they obviously need services, right? And, and I, I, like I said, I guarantee you, if you were interested, you could almost certainly find such services um, in your town if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, but sometimes it's just, they need somebody to listen to, you know, it's, you know, some family members just have passed away and, you know, someone, they need somebody to just sit there with them and, and hear them out. Um, or even in a domestic dispute situation or a domestic violence situation, it can be helpful to have someone to talk it through. Right. Um, it can be, um, cathart both cathartic and, and a way to deal with that trauma, but also to help overcome that trauma to know that you have someone you can, you can talk to and, and communicate with and just kind of express your emotions to and be vulnerable with. And I think that, you know, certainly every cop knows that cops just kind of end up in that situation because again, you, when you have the number 911, that the cops will come no matter what, then, you know, that gets used more often for nothing violent, nothing, you know, warranting any kind of jail time. It's usually, you know, again, the number one thing is familial disputes um, or housemate disputes or some kind of, um, you know, tension within a household. And then, you know, all the like serious violent stuff. I mean, you certainly get a lot of that, but that's not the, you know, in my experience, that's never, it's probably like 16 to one, 16 you know, domestic dispute type situations compared to every one violent crime situation that police deal with. 
Um, and it, you know, it's probably the same for, I'd have to think for firefighters and EMTs, it's the same from a medical perspective. You know, most of the stuff they get calls for is probably not that serious for like the one actual heart attack or the, you know, one actual shooting victim or burn victim or something like that. You know, the rest of the stuff is, or the, the majority of the stuff that's kind of like the low hum of throughout the shift is going to be, you know, Oh, I cut my finger. Oh, I stubbed my toe or, you know, whatever it is. And, and, you know, I, I certainly don't necessarily knock someone who is concerned and think they need immediate help calling 911. I think if you're, you're that concerned, maybe you should. Um, but a lot of stuff is not like, you know, an immediate, I need someone to immediately respond with lights and sirens to my location and help me. Um, but you don't know that obviously as a citizen. So I don't, I don't expect that to be the purview of a citizen to kind of parse out like, well, what is the kind of emergency that warrants, you know, lights and sirens response response to me. Um, and, and, you know, most of the times with police anyway, the dispatchers and the, you know, there's a, the call center you reach has a way of prioritizing where whatever you describe, they can kind of tell, oh, well, this doesn't require, you know, everybody coming out, guns blazing. Um, but, you know, again, I, I'm certainly grateful to the volunteers that I've met and worked with, the people who served as mentors for me, and, and really just the opportunity to do that stuff and volunteer and, and be supported by those organizations. Um, it's very rewarding to be able to give back in that way and know that you helped with your community and that you helped with, you know, people who needed that extra, um, that extra set of hands, extra set of eyes, the listening ear. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm very grateful to have been able to do it. Um, and there's fun stories that come along with it, like the one I just told. Um, and there's, you know, fun, fun and exciting experiences, especially on the law enforcement side where, you know, it is, it is somewhat fun, I guess, dealing with like investigations and trying to catch actual bad guys. And, you know, there's a certain allure to that. Um, but a lot of it's just, you know, the, the day to day being there for people being positive, trying to be positive, um, facing up to some of the more negative elements of, uh, society and daily life. Because again, you know, if think about, think about the fact that a lot of times when someone's calling the police, it's they're probably the one of the worst days they've ever had, if not the worst day they're having the worst moment they may have ever had when they pick up that phone and they call 911 because something tragic has happened to them. Um, and as the responder, you're always, you know, your shift basically is interacting with, every, you know, all these different people who's having the worst moment of their lives, basically. Um, so, you know, that can be grating on the people who do it. And, you know, that affects, I think, everybody, whether it's the cops, whether it's the, the firefighters, whether it's the EMTs, whether it's the social workers, whether it's the, I mean, even the attorneys that get involved in some of these cases, I think you start to, you start to be a part of that system and you get to see where it fails and where, it, you know, how it can fail and maybe some of the shortcomings and some shortcomings of it. And it's very daunting, you know, and it can be, can put those people in a dark place. So I certainly feel a ton of gratitude to people that do that or, you know, people who do it from a paid perspective, people who do it from a volunteer perspective. Um, and, you know, like I said, I, I would encourage you all, if you're interested in, in truly being a part of a solution or just helping out in your community, I guarantee you there are ways you can volunteer, whether it's with the city directly whether it's with a nonprofit in your local area, you can certainly find a way to contribute your time. Maybe you don't have money to give, right? And, and I understand, you know, I certainly understand not having the money to give, but you, you might have the time, you know? Maybe you're, you've got nothing to do on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening and you want to go volunteer at one of these different organizations. You can contribute your time. Um, and most places, it's, pretty, you know, it's really not that hard to get involved. Um, so yeah, that's it. You know, we, a uh, little story time, <laughs> telling us the story of one of my uh, first ever experiences on the street in law enforcement. Um, where we ended up in a fight with this guy who just beat his girlfriend and my mother happened to be literally sitting at the stop sign right on the street where this is occurring and watched it all happen. Um, we were talking yesterday and she was like, I should have taken a video. And it's like, yeah, that'd be uh, pretty crazy if there was a video of this. Sadly, there's no video. Uh, this was like 2007 or 2008. So, uh, no videos. Um, well, I mean, we as a cop didn't have video back then. And my mom, I don't think, I don't even know if like cell phone video was a big thing then. I, I knew that like the iPhone was out by that point. So maybe, but I don't think it was like at the point. I mean, that, this is like pre Instagram, pre Snapchat. So 
um, I don't know if it was like as normal for people to like take out their phones and start video stuff, videoing stuff. Maybe it was just beginning to be a thing around that time. Um, but yeah, that's it for this episode. Um, if, if, if this is an episode you like, um, let me know. If it's an episode you don't like, let me know. You can reach out on Twitter at Just Here Club, or you can hit my personal socials, The Laughing Man on Instagram and Twitter, um, and pretty much anywhere. Anywhere there's handles and social names, The Laughing Man, or Just Laughing Man with no the LA, three Fs. M-A-N and, uh, or wow, I spelled that wrong. L-A-3-F-I-N-M-A-N uh, on any platform. Or you can go to justhere.club and you can sign up for the newsletter. Um, there's lots of ways to reach me. I'm not an impossible person to reach. So if you're interested in, in reaching out and giving me feedback, you want to say, hey, I hate story time. Let's not do that again. Uh, let me know. Or if you want more of it, I have tons of stories I could tell uh, between my time in LA Sheriff's. I did that for three years and I was a cop in DC for two years. So uh, I got a ton of fun, interesting stories. Uh, from those, or I got fun and interesting. I think from the outside perspective, for me, it's like I don't know. There's stuff we did, but I guess to some someone from the outside, it might seem exciting. Anyway, that's it for this one. Um, stay on the look, be on the lookout for the next episode. And obviously, you know, like I said, I'm working on a new podcast intro, so that's coming down the pipe as well. Um, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. We just came out of Christmas uh, on Sunday, and we're going into uh, New Year's this week. So I hope you all have yourselves a happy New Year and a welcome to 2023. Hopefully, you're ready to take it on with some gratitude and maybe even a little volunteering. Uh, I will catch you all in the next one.